You're going to love this. Just love it. We'll see. I'm not scared. Just take that part out of the song. Yep. Plenty of clowns and jokers everywhere you look. <laughs> this is your broadcast on Pacifica Radio's KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, and of course, coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org, on the Stitcher app, on the TuneIn app, on the great Progressive Voices channel, on Netroots Radio, on Liberal Justice Radio, and now, of course, on iTunes. You can run, but you can't hide. This is your Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly citizen investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. A little bit later in the show, we will have a Bradcast exclusive. That's right, you won't hear it anywhere else. A hot tip, a very hot tip for hackers. Specifically, for election hackers. Coming up a little bit later in the show, as I say, exclusive right here to the broadcast. Uh, you're not going to want to miss it. Uh, call your hacker friends and let them know. Mind you, it's not great news for those who love democracy, but, you know, hey, we're independent here. we got to call them as we see them. Plus, as always, a little bit later, Desi Doyen will be joining us with the Green News Report. Some new details on North Carolina colluding... With Duke Energy, what? Impossible. You mean the governor, the man who was uh, a 28 years executive, the CEO? Well, he was the CEO of Duke. No, just an executive at, uh, at Duke Energy. Now that he's become the governor of North Carolina, what? They're colluding? Impossible. Uh, and uh, also some news on how a federal memo warns, a secret federal memo warns, that the nationwide electrical grid is now vulnerable to be taking out, taken out in one fell swoop. So we have all of that cheery news ahead. You'll want to stay tuned for that uh, and much, much more. Uh, but first, uh, speaking of cheery news, the Ukraine, the Crimea. Uh, in a blog item on Monday, law professor Ilya Soman of the Washington Post's now right-leaning Volokh conspiracy blog declared that the weekend's 96.7% referendum vote in favor of Crimea joining Russia uh, was either fraudulent or the result of voter Im intimidation of some sort. Uh, in the article, Soman called the results of that referendum dubious. He called them highly improbable. He declared at least three times in his very short, it was a six-paragraph item, that the referendum's results were achieved, uh, he puts that word in quotes, uh, and or likely tainted by fraud or intimidation. 
the likelihood of which Soman describes as a fact in the Washington Post. He says it over and over again that 96.7% results were fraud or intimidation. Now, I will agree, 96.7% in any election is uh, highly questionable and should definitely be looked at. But you've got this George Mason University uh, School of Law professor stating over and over again, that it was fraud, that it was intimidation, that fraud uh, was the reason for the 96.7% referendum result in Crimea. Um, The mainstream corporate media in the U.S. has a very difficult time reporting on real evidence of election fraud in American elections, much less reporting it as fact. But when it comes to elections overseas, apparently... Uh, the mainstream corporate media has no problem, particularly those uh, folks at The Washington Post have no problem declaring fraud in an election, at least when it's overseas and it involves perceived geopolitical foes. This has become the narrative. That's what we heard uh, this week over the past week, even leading up to the election, that, oh, it was going to be fraud. You can't trust the results. It's that thug. It's that bully Putin. But, you know, that's because it's their elections, not ours. And all of this actually, for a start, reminded me of 2004, when just days after the 2004 presidential election in the U.S., the very questionable 2004 presidential election in the U.S., where we saw far more signs of fraud and intimidation and voter suppression in the state of Ohio, When we saw that back in 2004, anyone who wanted to investigate that, anyone who wanted to talk about that, as we did at Bradblog.com, was a conspiracy theorist. Never mind that the exit polls all showed that uh, John Kerry should have won that election in state after state and that for some reason the incumbent George W. Bush ended up winning. Never mind that. Uh, Talk about it. Investigation of it was all stuff and nonsense. Days later, days later after that 2004 election, we had what was then known as the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, where there was an election. The incumbent looked like he was going to lose. Exit polls said the incumbent was going to lose, just like here. Um, And then the incumbent ended up winning. And, of course, at the time, uh, Colin Powell, George W. Bush all came out. They declared fraud in the elections uh, in Ukraine. They said it was because the exit polls showed the other guy should have won. By the way, those exit polls were done, were created, were run by the very same people who ran them here in the U.S. But out there, it was fraud. Out here, it's conspiracy theory if you talk about it. And that continues today. That's the narrative. That's what we saw in the Washington Post, where they declared this 96.7% referendum to be fraudulent. Never mind the evidence, never mind the lack of evidence that they that they put forward. So I did some work. I went looking you know, at all of the stories that, that covered this and looked at the actual evidence to try to find it, because maybe it was fraudulent. I could find little or none to back up the assertion that this was fraudulent. As a matter of fact, the more I looked, the more evidence I found that this number was probably right on. Uh, A a huge section of the population decided to boycott the election entirely. Their voices weren't heard. I don't know what they were trying to achieve by boycotting, but all all that they seem to have achieved is uh, raising the support for Crimea joining up with uh, with the Russian Federation. 
I wrote about it at bradblog.com. You can see the uh, detailed uh, story I put together there trying to look at all of the evidence. And it may, by the way, have been fraudulent. But the idea that the mainstream corporate media is happy to just declare these things without evidence or with very slight evidence when it's other countries but not here sort of goes along with uh, something that uh, Robert Perry wrote about uh, this week at consortiumnews.com. The idea that the uh, the narrative is sort of decided, whether it's in uh, D.C., whether it's in the mainstream corporate media, they all sort of agree on a narrative. It doesn't matter what the facts are. It doesn't matter what the evidence are. That's what they're going with. Um After seeing that uh, article, I decided I needed to talk to uh, Robert Perry because so much of what uh, what he wrote about is what I have been thinking, whether it's the Ukraine, whether it is the 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 Syria uh, issue a couple of months ago when we were ready to go to war with them with no evidence that they had used uh, chemical weapons against their own people. Uh, And of course, at the time, it all goes back to Iraq and the lack of evidence there to go to war. But these are the narratives. These are the D.C. narratives. These are the mainstream corporate media narratives. And uh, I'd like to look underneath those narratives to find out how much fact is actually there. Investigative reporter Robert Perry broke many of the Iran-Contra stories back in the 1980s for both the Associated Press and Newsweek. He now runs ConsortiumNews.com. His new book is America's Stolen Narrative. From Washington and Madison to Nixon, Reagan and the Bushes to Barack Obama. Robert Perry, sir, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you, Brad. Great to have you here. Okay, uh, we, we know about what happened uh, in Iraq and the nonsense that the, the mainstream media ran with that got us into a never-ending war in Iraq. Um, so we don't need to cover that. I want to get to Ukraine in a moment, but first, before we do, you covered something in your article called Mainstream U.S. Media is Lost in Ukraine. You talked about Syria, and it's something that we talked about, questioned the evidence or lack thereof that was being put forward uh, in Syria a few months ago when there was a call to go to war in Syria uh, because Assad had supposedly used chemical weapons on his own people. Before we get to Ukraine, what did you find out about Syria and the evidence that or lack of evidence that the mainstream media and the D.C. folks had been running with for so long and and how it was really kind of stuff and nonsense. Well, there was an attack, apparently, on mm-hmm. August 21st, where uh, probably several hundred uh, uh, Syrians died uh, from exposure to sarin. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the, uh, the evidence as to who launched the attack was really was very murky, and was uh, the, the U.S. government immediately uh, fingered the, the Syrian government. Mm-hmm. Uh, however... Um, the U.S. government provided not a single shred of evidence that could be independently checked. Uh, the the uh, the State Department um, also hid the fact that many of the analysts at, at, inside the intelligence community had, had grave doubts about the Syrian government role. That's why there was no national intelligence estimate released, which would have included the not just the overall assessments from the 16 mm-hmm. intelligence agencies, but would have had uh, footnotes citing dissents and where and where the analysts felt this, the evidence was very weak. So instead, <laughs> there was a concoction called a, a, a government assessment. Uh, and we've never seen this before, but right. it was put out as a, sort of a white paper, several pages. Uh, it was put out on the White House uh, uh, press office site, not from the, from the director of national intelligence where you'd expect this sort of thing to come from. 
and it and made a bunch of allegations, assertions, but provided absolutely zero evidence that could be checked. Right. Um, zero. None. Well, it made zero, assertions. None. Right. Right. Just assertions. Right. And then and then that was followed up by uh, a UN examination, and it turned out there was only probably one missile, not multiple missiles, that carried sarin. There were two that were looked at in particular in the UN report. One of them, which struck south of Damascus, was found to have no sarin at all, although for some reason this was sort of included. And the other one did apparently carry sarin. But And, and the New York Times, Human Rights Watch, and, other group, and some other folks mm-hmm. did a sort of a vector analysis taking from where they thought the, the, the these missiles had come from. And they, if you followed them back far enough, they crossed at nine and a half kilometers away at a Syrian military base. So the New York Times goes out with a front page story basically saying, slam dunk, we've got it, just like we had those aluminum <laughs> tubes nailed down yeah. in on Iraq and their nuclear program, we've got this one. However, not only was there a problem because only one of the missiles, or one of the rockets had sarin, so it's sort of silly to do a, this kind of uh, vector analysis, and, and that one also had, had struck a building on the way down, so it wasn't clear where it had come from. But more significantly, when, when MIT and other scientists examined the, 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 that, the rocket that did carry sarin, they determined that it had a maximum range of about two and a half kilometers, not the nine and a half that would be needed for the New York Times, Human Rights Watch, et cetera, analysis. So this whole thing was basically debunked. Um, and it was, it was, and I should say, it was, because I want, I want to give credit where it's due, that New York Times story was written by C.J. Chivers and Rick Gladstone. The first one. And, right, that, that first one. Well, and then the second one was what? The, the apology for uh, the admission well, that they got it wrong, correct? It was, it was kind of, well, basically months later, three months later or so, on page uh, eight or something, in the middle mm-hmm. of the newspaper, Below the fold, mm-hmm. there was a story in the New York Times saying more new evidence about the Syrian missile or whatever. And then if you read down to the 18th paragraph in that story, the New York Times said, well, yes, we did think this, but now it seems not to be true. So it was, so this narrative, uh, in, in the end, we don't have any evidence. He may have done it, uh, Assad may have done it, but we still don't have There's any no evidence. evidence. And the evidence that they put forward on the front page of the New York Times, Collapse. that sounds vaguely familiar, uh, yeah, ends up collapsing. Now, luckily, in that case, we avoided uh, going to war. But, uh, I mean, it, it was incredible because it was almost the 10th anniversary of, of Iraq that this whole Syria mess came up. Um and it, it looked like the exact same thing. It looked like we had learned nothing. All right, let, let's move the ball forward now to Ukraine and to the narrative we are being given about Ukraine. What, Robert Perry, are we not being told about the situation in Ukraine and Crimea? And then, by the way, I've got uh, audio of this uh, remarkable phone call that, that you pointed me to, this leaked phone call that I can't believe it hasn't been all over the news everywhere. But before we get to that, what, what in general, what are we not being told uh, by the administration, by the Republicans, by the Democrats, and by the corporate media about the Ukraine and uh, uh, the Crimea situation? Well, in some ways, it, it, it may relate back to the Syrian situation, because mm-hmm. at that point, in all, last summer, the, the, the neoconservatives in Washington, who, and they, have, they still maintain a lot of influence, they, 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 have, they basically run the Washington Post, they have, they have tremendous influence in uh, think tanks, NGOs, and, and as well as still in places like the State Department. So, you ha- so there was a lot of anger, because the person who really sort of prevented uh, the, the U.S. from going to war in Syria was Vladimir Putin. 
he was the one who kind of gave President Obama a way out of the sort of the corner that Obama had put himself in. Mm-hmm. And and it was that that the Syrians would agree to give up to give up their nu- their chemical weapons, um, and the U.S. would say, "Okay, we're not going to attack." So that became the way out. But that was not what a lot of the neocons were hoping for. They thought we were on the verge of another regime change war. Mm-hmm. We're going to bomb Syria. So right. so we start seeing in roughly the same time in September of last year, uh, some of the key neocons begin to target Ukraine. Uh, and, you know, one was um, Carl Gershman, who was the president of the National Endowment for Democracy, which is this thing that was created 30 years ago, to do essentially what the CIA used to do behind the scenes, but the NED was to do it more publicly, which is to sort of organize activist groups and um, uh, journalists and business groups mm-hmm. in these different countries, supposedly to uh, do uh, promotion of democracy, but what that often translated into was destabilization. You saw it with some of these colored revolutions you mm-hmm. mentioned. They were involved in the, uh, you know, the, 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 the different ones, the orange, the pink, and so mm-hmm. forth, revolutions. So, so Gershman goes to the Washington Post, of all, again, of all places, and he writes this piece about how the, the biggest prize is going to be Ukraine. Uh, and, but then he says, but beyond that, uh, the, real, the, the focus is going to turn to Putin in Moscow, and he may end up on the wrong side of everything. And that was I when? How, how long ago was that, that he's writing this September, in the Washington Post? September of 2013. Wow. Okay. So, uh, so they already had their eyes on Ukraine. And on Putin. And on Putin in the, uh, in the follow-up, in the wake of what happened in Syria, where they, they took away, the, Putin uh, took away the war for the, that they were all ready to run there. Basically, yeah, he yeah. was a key figure in, in, in diverting us away from another war in the Middle East. So that, and, and only to speed it up, because I want to make sure we get to this uh, phone call, uh, to, to this remarkable audio tape. Um, essentially, they were pouring in money. There was neocons pouring in money. There was actually folks on the right and left, I think, uh, p- pouring in uh, money into Ukraine, trying to stir up trouble. Although you, uh, like Vladimir Putin, uh, write in uh, in your article that it was actually fascists, uh, far-right, uh, f- ultra-fascists who were uh, sort of leading the way in this uprising. Yeah, that's this not, that's uprising. not an allegation. This is one of the odd things here. This yeah. is like reported real-time mm-hmm. that these neo-Nazi groups, the right sector and other elements, who were a minority in the in the early protests mm-hmm. that were being that were occurring because there were legitimate concerns that the Ukrainians had against their government. Yanukovych was elected uh, in a fair election, but he was corrupt and, he, and and the economy was terrible, and and so they had reasons to to be very concerned and upset. Mm-hmm. Now, um, uh, the, the the fight though was over what, whether Yanukovych should accept a, a rather bad deal from the Europeans who were going to help uh, 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 Ukraine out, but with a lot of austerity attached, or whether he would accept a better deal or a more generous deal of $15 billion from the Russians. He opted for the, for the latter, um, feeling that the, that the European deal was not a good one for mm-hmm. his country. Um, and that, of course, set, and that set some of the folks in western Ukraine, who tend to be more European-oriented, uh, off. And so they, they had these rallies. But as the rallies got more violent, and there were these mysterious... Uh, sniper attacks, which the U.S. government has blamed on the Ukrainian police, but other evidence suggests were, were actually carried out by people in the opposition to create a pretext for for uh, for, for some more violent uh, uh, overthrow. When that when those violent 
uh, efforts became much worse, then these neo-Nazi far-right um, militias who had been, that had been organized over time came to the fore and, and conducted some of the most violent attacks on the police. And there's very little reporting of that, at least in the, in the U.S. media, I should say in the Western media, really very little reporting of that. Uh, the narrative is such that, oh, well, these, uh, the, the, this uprising got out of hand. Victor uh, Yanukovych, who was the, the democratically elected prime minister at the time, he unleashed his thugs, he unleashed his snipers on the crowd. He ended up killing about 100 of his his own people, his own citizens, and therefore, after that, it was over. Why would we have any sympathy for the guy who killed, uh, you know, his own people right. violently? Although, yeah. although, again, you know, the, the original reporting was that the, a number of police, or more than a dozen police, were also among those killed. But that sort of gets wiped out. The New York Times just simply reports it now as the police killed 80 demonstrators. D- that's and it's r- a much murkier situation, and where violence was on both sides, and it wasn't anything this clear-cut. So, Anyway, so Yanukovych, to try to calm things down, agrees to with, with some European uh, countries that were negotiating to try to solve this problem to uh, go ahead and have, uh, and, and to have early elections. He would reduce his powers, and he would agree for the police to back off. At that point, when the police backed off, this is February 21st, that's when these neo-Nazi mil- militias, who are the best armed, best and best trained, and most, most militant, seized control of, of the government buildings, tried to kill Yanukovych. He escaped, he fled for his life, along with some of his advisors. A number of people were roughed up and, and some were killed. And then, with sort of a rump parliament, votes Yanukovych out of office, not following the constitutional procedures. And immediately, the United States and the European Union recognize this as a legitimate government. They forget about the February 21st agreement, which they had just signed, or at least some of the Europeans had signed, and 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 the story and the narrative is is just accepted in the U.S. press as this black and white thing mm-hmm. where the this this black hat uh, Yanukovych backed by a black hat Putin against these wonderful white hat demonstrators uh, fighting for democracy, even though they were overthrowing a democratic elected leader. Where you know, it was it was all this sort of propagandistic. Um, narrative that was that that was reported across the board in the U.S. and and, uh, and at the same time we were out uh, you know saying oh they're putting out propaganda Putin is putting out propaganda <laughs> RT uh, Russia Today uh, the cable uh, satellite uh, English Channel satellite network and I I should say uh, for full disclosure I've been on it many times they never tell me what to say but I've been on it many times and I have little doubt actually that Putin was to some extent putting out his own propaganda the you know the the view but of the, the story that he the wanted problem, it to Brad, be seen. The problem, yeah. Brad, is that in this case, the, the, what you call the Russian propaganda was closer to the factual reality okay. than what the U.S. media was doing. Well, and this is where I want to and, get and to. We, yeah, go ahead. And we, should, we, and, we, and we shouldn't try to go over the other side and say, well, you know, we both sides are equally at fault here. It, okay. it wasn't that case. The, there, and, and, and the odd thing was that much of this was reported by the Western media. BBC, for instance, did a very good show on one of their, uh, one of their major news programs about these neo-Nazis who were hailing back to uh, many of some of the, 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 not, the actual Nazi collaborators of World War II, people like Bandera, who was one of their heroes, who was a collaborator with Hitler. This is, so this, this is not like made up. This is not an urban legend. It's been treated by the American press now as like some kind of conspiracy theory, but, but four of the ministries 
of this new government are controlled by these far-right characters, including defense. And, and, and so, so it's, 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 it's probably the first time we've seen actual Nazis in an executive position in a government in Europe since World War II. Well, you know, and I wanted to, the, the reason I was saying that, you know, oh, I'm sure Putin is putting out, I don't even want to call it propaganda, he's putting out what, you know, his side of the story as he sees it, which is either true or is not. Uh, Robert Perry, who I'm speaking to, argues that it is more true than false, and that's fine. Um, but I would hope that our media would at least, you know, tell us about these facts. So many of the things that you've just stepped through, uh, Robert, I, I hadn't heard at all. Uh, this phone call, and I want to get to this phone call. I've got just a clip of it here, uh, a little less than a minute. Uh, this is a leaked phone call. Now, it was probably leaked by the Russians to help make their, uh, to help make their case here, I, I would suspect. But in any case, I don't think anybody has questioned the legitimacy of this phone call. The problem is uh, the Western media hasn't shared this phone call really with us this was found uh the guardian had run this and you pointed it to towards uh, uh pointed it out to me from consortiumnews.com but this is a phone call between uh eu foreign affairs chief Catherine ashton and the estonian foreign minister Urmas payet um, and during the conversation, uh, Payet talks about a woman named Olga, who was apparently uh, a, a, a top medical examiner uh, at the time, who had looked at the bodies after these shootings that we've all heard about, that we've all heard, oh, it's Yanukovych who mowed down a hundred of his own people. Um, what Olga told him and what he explains to Catherine Ashton here uh, is that when she examined the body and the evidence that the police seem to have been shot by the same people uh, whoever shot the protesters. And let me just play a clip of this, uh, clip number one, Teddy. What was quite disturbing, the same Olga told that, well, all the evidence shows uh, that people who were killed by snipers from both sides, among policemen and, and people from the streets, that they were the same snipers killing people from both sides. Well, that's, yeah. Up. So that, and then she also showed me some photos. Uh, she said that has medical doctor. She can, you know, say that it is the same, same handwriting, the same type of bullets. And it's really disturbing that now the new, uh, new coalition that they don't want to investigate what exactly happened. So that there is now stronger and stronger understanding that behind snipers they were. It was not Yanukovych, but it was somebody from the new coalition. I think they do want to investigate. I mean, I didn't, I didn't pick that up. That's interesting. Gosh. Yeah. Gosh, that's interesting. That's uh, the EU Foreign Affairs Chief, uh, Catherine Ashton, hearing a report from Estonian Foreign Minister Ermes Payet uh, after his visit to Ukraine. That's a leaked phone call uh, between the two of them about the situation that was going on in Ukraine at the time. And um, yeah, uh, so there is stronger and stronger understanding that behind the snipers, it was not Yanukovych. It was somebody from the new coalition. And yet, Robert Perry, uh, very little outrage, very little interest in investigating what happened. It's It uh, seems as if we have forgotten about that. We've got a new government in Ukraine. He happens to be friendly uh, with the U.S. And uh, now the fight is against uh, that, that thug, that bully, Vladimir Putin. Uh, Robert, in the last uh, few minutes we have here, um, Give, give me an idea. What, what is the U.S. stake here? Why, for a start, is this so important to us uh, that we've got to stand up to this bully Putin? And um, 
why is this even happening in the first place? What are our interests in um, apparently picking a fight with uh, with Vladimir Putin and helping to overthrow uh, a democratically elected uh, prime minister, whether he was or president, w- whether he was uh, corrupt or not? What what does the what is what is in this for the U.S.? Why is this happening? Why are we doing it? Why are we supporting it? Well, I think for the American people, there's there's really very little reason at all. Um, clearly, there is interest among some of the policymakers, and this is the point I've been I've been trying to make is that is that the neoconservatives who still have a strong base, in, especially in the State Department, where they some of them were advanced under Hillary Clinton's leadership, and some have continued to advance under John Kerry's leadership. People uh, people like Victoria Nuland, the Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs, who is 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 not just a, a neocon, but she is she's the wife of one of the leading neocons in the United States, Robert Kagan. Uh, the, the Kagan family are like the like the royalty of of neocons. Frederick Kagan was a key figure in uh, the Iraq War and uh, um, pushing through uh, the the surge in Afghanistan. So th- these are these are key people in the neocon community. And they are driving this process. And of course, Sec- Senator McCain personally went went to the Maiden Square and and sort of urged on these these demonstrations. Appeared with some of the most right wing elements. I'm not sure he knew who he we, we was standing with, but they were some of these neo Nazis. Uh, uh, Newland also went to uh, the, the the square and passed out cookies to the demonstrators. I mean, this was this was a case of uh, some policymakers. I think finding. An advantage, and the key advantage for the neocons is that they were facing a, a situation where President Obama, more or less behind the scenes, very quietly, was working with President Putin to try to resolve some of these very difficult issues in the Middle East, particularly Syria, which we talked about, but also Iran, where where Putin was trying to help the, get the Iranians to the table so they would negotiate constraints on their nuclear program and avoid another possible U.S. military strike in the Middle East. Um, the neocons are furious about all this because they want to proceed with their plan. Their plan was always to have these regime changes. They started with Iraq. That didn't really go very well. But they never gave up their plan, which was then to somehow destabilize Syria, destabilize Iran, and then get the U.S. somehow involved to sort of finish the job. It just seems like a matter of, uh-oh, our war industry may be coming to an end. Uh, let's see if we can change. As a matter of fact, we can't avoid the timing that the Department of Defense had just come out with a report talking about cutting troops, uh, you know, cutting the defense budget. And uh, I think it was, oh, Bill O'Reilly, right on cue, comes out on Fox News and says, uh, well, he's not going to cut any troops now. That's over now that right. now that we have this uh, revolution in, in, in Ukraine. And we're, you know, re- reuniting the Cold War, reigniting the Cold War with Putin. Uh, it's amazing, and it's amazing that the media seems to be helping them do this without questioning the narrative. Uh, you wrote, uh, Robert Perry, that the vote uh, about the Crimean referendum, if it favors secession, it must be seen as rigged and resulting from Russian, co- from only from. Russian coercion, all the better to continue the false narrative that now dominates the U.S. political media process. Yet the danger of false narratives, as the American people saw in Iraq and almost revisited in Syria, is that policies, including warfare, can be driven by myth, not by fact. Uh, Get some of those facts, if you can, over at consortiumnews.com. 
from Robert Perry, who also has a book on this very issue, America's Stolen Narrative. Uh, Mr. Perry, great, as always, uh, to talk to you about this. And uh, thank you for, for, for calling out what, what so many in the media just don't, don't seem interested in doing. Thank you, Brad. Yeah, that's a a long-distance dedication. goes out to our uh, friend Senator John McCain, who's back in the USSR. The Cold War is back. He couldn't be happier about it. We're going to take a quick break and come back, as I teased earlier, a hot tip for election hackers. Desi Doyen in the Green News Report and much more straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Listener supported. 99% approved. KPFK. The Pacifica Radio Archives celebrates Women's History Month. I was sitting around in the Congress of the United States in 1975. That year also happened to be uh, International Women's Year. I mean, that year they gave us a year. I mean, who knows? If we behave, they may let us into the whole thing. That was American lawyer, congresswoman, social activist, and feminist Bella Abza talking about gender inequality in Congress in 1981, part of the Pacifica Radio Archives Preservation and Access Project, American Women Making History and Culture, 1963 to 1982, funded in part by a grant from the National Historical Publications and Records Commission at the National Archives and Records Administration. For more information, visit us at PacificaRadioArchives.org. Thanks for keeping our women's history alive. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. Yeah, yeah, you can touch it. You can't touch this. Oh yeah, you can. You can touch it now. You can't touch this. Yes, you can touch it. Just go to eBay. You can touch it there. Yeah. Welcome back to the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, and, and yeah, you can touch it. You can you can go on over to eBay. We got great news for you. Great news for all of you election hackers out there just in time to practice up your hacking skills before the 2014 midterm elections. You, yes you, can now buy your very own ESNS iVotronic touchscreen voting system from eBay. Yes, that's right. The very same voting systems that are so incredibly sensitive and vulnerable to tampering and which have failed so often in so many states and in so many elections that both uh, election officials and the company that makes them, ESNS, Election Systems and Software, Inc., that they have long attempted to keep them out of the hands of the public. Nobody can look at them. Trade secrets. They're sensitive. They can be hacked. So you can't look at them. Oh, but now you can. They can now, uh, you can uh, buy, uh, well, there's at least 10 of them available, according to eBay. And they can now be yours for just $499.99 or best offer via eBay. That's right. And it includes free shipping. 
one of them has already been sold, and that's very cheap. That's they sold new for uh, I don't know, is it twenty four, twenty five hundred bucks at least? So now you can get them for five hundred bucks. The systems, according to the eBay ad, are used, but they're in great working condition, the Illinois-based seller Gadgets Plus told me uh, at the Brad blog that the systems were last used in Clay County, Florida. The ESNS Ivotronic, in case you'd like to practice your hacking and election theft skills for any reason, it's among the most widely used uh, touchscreen voting systems in the country. It's made by the largest e-voting system vendor in the world. According to uh, Verified Voting, these 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems were used in uh, in 2012 in 403 voting jurisdictions across all or part of 18 states. That's right. If you're listening to me right now in Arkansas or Colorado or Florida or Indiana or Kansas or Kentucky or Missouri or Mississippi or North Carolina or New Jersey or Ohio or Pennsylvania or South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, Virginia, Wisconsin, West Virginia or the District of Columbia, pay attention. Go over to eBay. They still use those machines. You can go over there. You can buy one and you can practice hacking it. Uh, And I'll tell you what a scientist, a computer scientist, an expert in this field told me about these machines. But just in case you need any more reminder, uh, these were the machines. They're very ubiquitous. They're used across the country. These were the ones that played a starring role. The Ivotronic played a starring role in such elections as the 2010 election that ended up nominating the completely unknown and largely illiterate uh, Alvin Green in 2010 Uh, In South Carolina, you remember that guy who nobody heard of was elected on 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen systems. That's right. It was the ESNS Ivotronic. It was also the system on which 18,000 votes simply disappeared in Florida, in Sarasota, Florida, back in 2006. The result, uh, a special election in Florida's uh, 13th congressional district saw the Republican Vern Buchanan beat out the Democrat Christine Jennings by just 369 votes after the Ivotronic uh, Ivotronic helped us lose 18,000 votes, which, by the way, no one is disputing. They they just don't know what happened to them. 18,000 votes went away in Sarasota. Republican wins by 369 votes. And, of course, there are still those unexplained, impossible election results from Monroe County, Arkansas in 2010, also reported exclusively at Brad Blog. When thousands of votes disappeared, just the numbers started going backwards. We saw certain results on election night. They started going backwards. So far, Monroe County uh, election officials and Arkansas state officials at the Secretary of State's office have never been able to explain why those numbers went backwards. I've got the documents at bradblog.com to prove it happened. Once again... Thanks to the ESNS Ivotronic. Uh, I asked um, Joe Lorenzo Hall, who is the, uh, now the chief technologist at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Uh, he worked on both of the landmark e-voting studies, uh, one out here in California and the other one out in Ohio, Everest, uh, it was called, that study. He worked on both, looked at every single voting machine used by both both of those states, California and uh, Ohio, found that every single one of them could be tampered with, hacked uh, in seconds. Uh, I asked him, you know, what what are the concerns about a voting machine like this being available to the general public on eBay? 
He told me that, quote, if a voting machine were to fall into the wrong hands, there is probably quite a bit a bad guy could learn in order to plan and design future attacks on such a machine. Uh, Hall cited two different cases in the past where computer scientists and security experts obtained voting systems made by other vendors, Diebold and Sequoia in those cases, and they were then able to use them to discover serious security vulnerabilities. In both cases, Hall explained to me via email, despite very different designs, they were able to change votes and write a machine-specific virus that would allow fraudulent vote counts and then spread silently from machine to machine over the course of a few elections. Joe Hall writes that uh, while it may only be feasible for an attacker, for an external attacker to get a few minutes to a few hours with a machine, having a machine that they can develop and pilot possible attacks would be a very necessary resource for this kind of work. He goes on uh, to warn that uh, even if a vulnerability uh, was discovered in these machines uh, and it was learned that such a hack was 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 planned, a new way to exploit such a system, uh, uh, exploit these systems, given the way these systems are designed and the way the certification process works, uh, he says, quote, no specific fix or update could be developed and certified in time. We'd likely have to run the next election knowing a serious set of vulnerabilities were live in the system. So happy hacking, hackers. Head on over to uh, eBay today and buy yourself one of these machines and plan your next attack. November is only a few months away. By the way, we had a very similar story back in 2008 where a uh, a Diebold touchscreen voting machine, a number of those also showed up on eBay. It was the same seller at the time. Uh, and so I guess we haven't learned our lesson. Uh, and, um, well, I don't know. Do you care? I think it's kind of important. We'll see who else uh, bothers to notice. Uh, you can read the full story on this at bradblog.com. And you can get the link to uh, to buy your very own machine. Oh, brother, what a mess. Uh, and you'll only hear it here on the broadcast. So congratulations. Uh, meanwhile, speaking of voting, before we get to Desi Doyen and the Green News, um, Governor Scott Walker says he will uh, call for a special session in the uh, Wisconsin legislature if the Supreme Court finds the uh, polling place photo ID restriction that the Republicans have put in place, if the Supreme Court confirms, like the two other courts in Wisconsin, that that is uh, unconstitutional. He is willing to call a special section uh, session for this, to call the legislature back into order to try again to pass another bill. He says that this is uh, the only thing that he regards as pressing, pressing enough to bring folks back uh, to, <laughs> to, to the Capitol to legislate uh, over. Getting this done in time for the election in November of 2014, when, oh, Scott Walker will be on the ballot and up for re-election, and he's in a horse race right now, according to the polls. Um, But this is the one thing that Scott Walker thinks is really important, to make sure that people, tens of thousands of them in Wisconsin, 
tens of thousands of legal voters don't get to cast their vote this November. Uh, kudos at the same time, I should say, to uh, Republican Dale Schultz. This is just breaking over at uh, Think Progress. Um, Wisconsin State Senator Dale Schultz who says uh, he's embarrassed by this. He's not willing to defend these Republicans anymore for what they're doing. He says, I'm just not, and I'm embarrassed by this. He says, I began this session thinking that there was some lack of faith in our voting process and we maybe needed to address it, but I have come to the conclusion that what uh, that this is far less noble. He says, the fact is, it is... Uh, it ought to be abundantly clear to everybody in the state that there is no massive fraud. He says it's about vote suppression. He says we should be pitching as political parties our ideas for improving things in the future rather than mucking around in the mechanics and making it more confrontational at the voting sites and trying to suppress the vote. That's Republican state senator of Wisconsin, Dale Schultz, calling out his own party Good for him for these uh, reprehensible uh, photo ID restrictions on voters and the desperation that Scott Walker is showing uh, to try to get them in place before before November. Uh, He also added, Schultz also added, it's all predicated on some belief that there is massive fraud or or irregularities, something my colleagues have been hot on the trail for three years and have failed miserably at demonstrating. Yep, you think? All right, let's uh, let's do some green news. Desi Doyen, come on in. You got the old, you got, there we go. Can't have her in without a theme song. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Stopping the world and melting for Desi Doyen, my co-host on the Green News Report. Welcome, Desi Doyen. Well, thank you. Should we do the Green News Report first, or should we go to Senator Whitehouse's uh, uh, remarks the other day at the overnight? Uh, what, what's your call here? Well, I think we'll have more time if we do Senator Whitehouse now. Do him now. All right. Uh, Senator White. this was the all-night, uh, the all-nighter. If we play him, not do him. Uh, well, okay. Yeah, <laughs> if thanks. we play the clip of Senator Whitehouse, yeah. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island, a Democrat. You want to keep digging? Who oh, headed uh, up uh-huh. the Senate up for climate all-nighter uh, last week, last Monday night. They stayed up for 15 hours, 15 hours, uh, Democratic senators did to talk about climate change. They it was all symbolic, but they did it anyway because they raised the awareness of it and got people to talk about and it. He ra- and I made fun of it because it was done in the middle of the night when, when everybody's asleep. everyone's asleep. Uh, but our friend Kenny Pick from Turn Up the Night uh, on on the liberal justice radio network, uh, brought slogged through all of this overnight uh, commentary, and he found this remark from Senator Whitehouse, which I think is is really smart. He highlights Citizens United, the decision there in the Supreme Court, as the reason, as the moment when. The right wingers just decided to flip to all become denialists. They had always, you know, sort of been on the fringe. Uh, there was denialists on climate change, but after Citizens United, well, I'll I'll let Senator Whitehouse explain. I mentioned earlier how we have a former Republican presidential candidate who campaigned on climate change. How we have a Republican senator who is a co-sponsor of a climate fee bill. How we have a Republican senator who voted for Waxman Markey when he was in the House. How we have Republican senators who have spoken for carbon fee. All of that happened before 2010. What happened 
in 2010 that drove every Republican back underground on this issue. I'll tell you what happened. The United States Supreme Court decided a case called Citizens United. And the instant they decided Citizens United, the Koch brothers and the big polluters put enormous amounts of money into elections. And they didn't just put the money into elections between Republicans and Democrats. They put money into elections between Republicans and Republicans. They went into primary elections. And they went after Republicans who were not consistent with their orthodoxy on climate change. Unless you were a denier, they either punished you or threatened you. And since that time, that's why there's been silence on the Republican side. It's not because there's not a tradition of Republicans caring about the environment. The Environment Protection Agency was established by a Republican president. Theodore Roosevelt was our greatest conservationist. There is a Republican tradition of this. There's a Republican tradition of standing up to the big money and sticking up for regular people. But not since Citizens United. Not since that baleful decision cast an absolute avalanche of dark money, of unlimited money and anonymous money into the elections. He's right. Uh, you know, it was the fringe who were the denialists before Citizens United, but you had uh, guys like John McCain, Lindsey Graham, Senator Mark Kirk, who were all in favor of action on climate change. Even Sarah Palin was calling for a cap-and-trade bill during the 2008 election, uh, and then along came Citizens United, and everything changed. Yeah, that was the inflection point at which all the money from the most, you know, uh, uh, successful business in the history of the world, the oil industry— was pouring into all of these campaigns because they had the freedom to do so with Citizens United. It gave them it more than a tool. It gave them a weapon. And now it's not just the fringe who, who are the deniers. We played this clip last week. It's very short. I'm going to play it again here. Uh, this was the debate recently uh, between the Republican uh, candidates for the U.S. Senate, uh, for the nomination for the U.S. Senate in uh, in Colorado, the Republicans. Now, it's not just the fringe. Uh, this was every single one of them, six people who are running for this nomination. Here's what happened when they were asked about uh, climate change. Do you believe our planet is being impacted by man-made global warming, Ken? No. Colin? No. Tom? No. Amy? No. Definitely not. Mark? No. Uh, no. Every single one of them. Okay, uh, very quickly, one more piece before we go to the Green News Report. Uh, clip number five. This was me last week on the show, Desi Doyen, last Wednesday. Uh, go ahead, number five. It's been 80s and 90s all winter long, and if uh, this winter doesn't turn out to be one of the hottest on record ever for the West Coast, I will eat my hat. The good news is I don't have to eat my hat <laughs> because right. the very next day, uh, the NOAA uh, Climatic uh, Data Center came out and said, yes, indeed, on the West Coast, it is. it has been the hottest winter. It was the hottest winter on record this yes, year. Yes, and they so also came out and right. said that this year globally, mm -hmm. it's the eighth warmest winter on record, even though it was cold just on the East Coast, mostly, yeah. that it was for the, for the globe, it was the eighth warmest. Yeah, but we're number one out here in California. All right, uh, let's go to the full Green News Report. Kick it, Teddy.
Threats to systems supporting the electricity grid are evolving and growing. Officials warn the entire nationwide grid could be knocked out. More new evidence that North Carolina collaborated with Duke Energy to derail lawsuits. BP is back, baby. Plus, surprise, Paris discovers stopping traffic really does stop pollution. All of those surprise discoveries and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. The Bible thumpers can keep denying global warming all they want, but I tell you, if Jesus came back to California, he would be pissed because there was no water to walk on. (laughs) Oh, ain't it the truth. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I hate to keep harping on this since I know much of the country, it's still very cold. But we were up again in the 90s out here in California, and I'm not saying that to rub it in. I'm saying that because it is now officially the hottest winter on record in California. It is the driest we have ever been on record. When should I start becoming concerned about this? Well, I think people are already becoming concerned because it's going to raise food prices since the Central Valley of California puts out something like half the nation's fruits and vegetables. Yeah, but will anybody understand that that's why their food prices are going up and that all of this is tied to global warming? (laughs) Probably not. Not if they watch the other news services. So what do you have today in our Green News Report? Well, first, an update on that massive coal ash spill from a dew energy plant in North Carolina that blanketed 70 miles of the Dan River back in February. A federal grand jury on Tuesday began considering whether criminal charges should be filed against coal giant Duke Energy and against North Carolina environmental regulators. That was triggered in part by new internal emails that show the state regulators apparently collaborated with Duke Energy to shield the company from environmental lawsuits. So the state regulators who are supposed to be regulating Duke Energy are instead collaborating with them to help them avoid lawsuits. Right. In fact, one internal email detailed, quote, exactly how Duke wants to be sued. Duke writing to state regulators explaining to them how they would like to be sued. Thank you. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And that's not all. The Associated Press reports Duke Energy last year lobbied for and received a special change in the law just for them, a special loophole from the Republican North Carolina legislature that protected it from ever having to clean up known coal ash groundwater pollution. I don't think the word regulator means what you think it means, North Carolina. And in the meantime, Duke Energy has agreed to pay the cleanup costs of that coal ash spill, but it's announced that ratepayers, their retail customers, will foot the bill to clean up the rest of Duke's 33 other coal ash ponds in North Carolina. Man, what a scam. But all's forgiven in the Gulf of Mexico, where BP is back, baby. The Environmental Protection Agency has just agreed to let British Petroleum return to deepwater drilling in the Gulf, declaring BP, quote, a responsible contractor, eligible to seek federal leases in the Gulf. Everything's fine if you're Duke Energy, if you're BP. Yep, it's only been four years since BP's negligence and corporate culture led to the deaths of 11 rig workers and the biggest accidental offshore oil spill in world history. 
Remember that bizarre sniper attack that nearly knocked out an electrical substation in California's Bay Area back in April? I do. A disturbing new security analysis concludes that the entire United States is vulnerable to a coast-to-coast blackout that could last for months. That's if a targeted attack knocked out as few as nine critical electric transmission substations across the country during a heat wave, according to an internal analysis by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, that was made public by the Wall Street Journal last week. The paper reported only the memo's broad outline, but FERC slammed the Wall Street Journal for essentially providing a roadmap to a huge U.S. security vulnerability. Yeah, that's okay. Nobody reads the Wall Street Journal anymore. Finally, Paris, France discovers that stopping traffic really does stop pollution. What? After days of dangerously high levels of smog pollution, officials in the City of Light banned half of all auto traffic from entering the city and instead offered completely free public transportation. After just one day, they say it worked. Smog levels dropped back to safe levels. So what did they do? Of course, they canceled the ban immediately. Well, how did they decide who to ban for bringing in their vehicles? They only let in cars with odd-numbered license plates. Uh, well, glad the smog is down, but that seems kind of a random ban to me. But it worked, and of course they had to stop it then. Sure, it would work if you banned all cars, too. I don't see them doing that anytime soon. Tyrant. For much more on that and the other tyrannical stories Desi is in favor of, check out our website (laughs) at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget, download us anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes, where we hope you will leave us a good review. And find us and follow us on the Facebook and the Twitters at Green News Report. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. See? See, no one would be able to drive 55 if it was up to you, Desi Doyen. (laughs) Tyrant. Tyrink. Well, coming up tomorrow on the next Green News Report, we're going to cover, I hope, I think, we might, uh, NASA's new recipe for civilization collapse. Pretty awesome, huh? Well, that's cheery. (laughs) Thanks. Keeping it lively. As usual. Uh, You'll be able to download that report on iTunes or bradblog.com because we only uh, get to play one of them a week here on KPFK. Uh, But uh, please do download it at iTunes and and give us a good review while you're there. That would be nice. That will help us all out. My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, to uh, Teddy on the soundboard, uh, our soundboard operator today. Thank you, Teddy. Well done. My thanks also to my guest, Robert Perry of ConsortiumNews.com. Stay tuned for John Wiener and the 4 o'clock report. We'll be back same time Next week, same Brad time, same Brad channel, right here on KPFK or other fine stations that you may be listening to us on. Until then, you can find me on the Twitters at the Brad Blog and at bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good night, America. <laughs> <laughs>